Well, please take your Bibles then and turn to uh, Luke chapter 7 and the passage that I read earlier. Well, he was a father and he watched... He watched helplessly as his son, who was probably in his teens, suffered immensely. The demon had rendered the young boy mute, and then the demon would seize the young man and dash him to the ground. The boy would foam at the mouth. His body would become rigid, and this had been happening since he was a child. And the father would watch helplessly. Can you imagine that? Some of you have children. Can you imagine that? All of us have Christian sympathy and compassion. Can you imagine that kind of suffering for the child, and, but also for the father? Well, Jesus comes, and the man brings his boy to Jesus and says to the Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can do anything? And he continues, all things are possible for the one who believes. If you can do anything? What do you mean by if? You think there's any question that I can do anything? Do you doubt that I can help? And I'm sure you'll remember the man's response. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's the reality then of what we might call doubting faith. This is a faith that is riddled with questions. This is the faith, I mean, it's a real faith, but it's a faith that is weak. It's a faith that seems to go out the window when trouble walks in the front door. And the Bible explains what our hearts are like. It explains to us that our faith is weak, and our faith stumbles, and our faith wanes. And the Bible explains what we're like. And the Bible explains that this is the same that was true of John. It explains what's happening with John in the passage that we're going to be looking at. Luke chapter 3 tells us where John was when this situation occurred. Because Luke 3 tells us that John had rebuked Herod the Tetrarch and had rebuked him for all the evil things that he had done. Not the least of which was the fact that that Herod had stolen his brother Philip's wife and taken her for himself. That wife, that woman, her name was Herodias, she was also niece to both the men. So this is a dreadful and a sordid situation. And sadly, This was just another in a sordid lifestyle that characterized these leaders. So John rebukes Herod, and he rebukes him for all the evil things that he had done. And Herod's response is not penitence. 
Herod's response is typical, and he throws John in prison. And he imprisons John in what was known as Fort Machiris. The Jewish historian Josephus writes about Fort Machiris and about John and the fact that John was imprisoned there, and that was where John ultimately would be killed by Herod, executed by this wicked man. And they've discovered the ruins of this Fort Machiris on the north end of the Dead Sea, and and you can visit it. And while John was in prison, he began to have doubts. Have you ever doubted God? John began to have doubts. And he sends messengers. He chooses two of his disciples and he says, Now go to Jesus and ask him this. And voice my doubts. In verses 18 to 23, we read about this incident. We're going to look at this and think about doubt and faith, and we're going to think, first of all, about the, the wonder of doubt. That is, it's an amazing thing, not in a good way. It's amazing in a bad way. And then we're going to think about the answer to doubt. And we'll begin then with the wonder of it. You need to know, though, that we're not talking here when we talk about doubt. We're not talking about rank unbelief. You know, the kind of rank unbelief that shakes its fist at God and denies cardinal doctrines of the Bible. We're talking about a faith that doubts. We can define doubt as a faith that struggles to believe. I'm sure you know what that's like. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're one of his You have faith in him, but sometimes your faith struggles to believe. And that's what's happening with John. Because there are times when there are unavoidable questions in life that shake us to the core. There's a weakness in our faith that drags us down and leaves us lying prone in the face of the troubles and difficulties that come in our lives, and we, we find ourselves crying out to God the way that man did, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So let's think about the, the amazing fact of doubt. How could John doubt? It's quite incredible that John should doubt. It's really amazing that John should say, go and ask him if he really is the one. The coming one, the one promised. The one who had predicted, the one who had been prophesied. The one, everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to the arrival of this one. Now go and ask him, are you that one? Or should we look for someone else? It's amazing because... You have to remember that all John's life, all the family gatherings he might have gone to, down through the years, at all the family gatherings, all the talk would have been about Elizabeth's relative Mary. John's mother, Elizabeth, had a relative named Mary, and all the talk at the family gatherings would have been about Mary 
and about the extraordinary conception, the virgin conception. And all the talk would have been about his cousin Jesus and the extraordinary birth and the otherworldly kind of life that he was living because you remember that he was perfect from beginning to end. He never did anything wrong. And a child who never does anything wrong would inevitably be the talk of any family gathering. And John would have been familiar with all the talk about Jesus. And remember that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was John who stood up. And it was John who cried out. Look! Calling on everybody to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said that and that. And now John sends a messenger to Jesus and says, Now ask him, are you really the one? Or should we look for someone else? This is really quite extraordinary that he should doubt like this. Because remember, he himself knew that Jesus was the coming one. The Old Testament would talk about the coming one. Psalm 40 will talk about Messiah and Messiah. These words are put in Messiah's mouth. Behold, I come. That's what Messiah says. Behold, I come. Well, John knew that Jesus was the coming one. And he knew, furthermore, that that he, John, was the one who was the forerunner of that coming one. And when John comes, he says, and you can read about this in Mark chapter 1, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John knew that Jesus was the coming one, and John knew that he was the forerunner of the coming one, and John told everybody, I'm the forerunner of the coming one, and the coming one, there he is. And yet now he says, go and ask him, are you the coming one? Or shall we look for another? It's just profound and amazing that John should do that. But I think it's equally profound and amazing and extraordinary that you and I, we know all kinds of theology. We have our minds don't we? I can ask you about God's wisdom and God's providence and God's kindness and God's grace and God's omnipotence and God's presence. And you can explain these things to me. But the fact of the matter is, you and I, we also doubt these things. And we doubt the wisdom of God sometimes. And we doubt the goodness of God sometimes. And we doubt his ability to help us in the midst of our troubles, don't we? Shame on us. It's really quite astonishing that you and I, you and I should doubt our God. Well, I want to give you a lesson here. Here's a lesson for us that we can draw from this amazing aspect of John's life where he doubts. And the fact, the lesson is simply this, that you're not alone. You, you doubt the Lord sometimes, but you're not alone in this. You're not in this boat all by yourself. 
There are other Christians there in the boat with you, and they doubt as well. And sometimes they're great Christians, they're great saints of God, and they struggle as well. You read Numbers 11 and you find Moses is struggling as well. Moses is having to deal with this mass of complaining people. You know how spiritually obtuse the children of Israel were. And Moses is struggling because they're always complaining. And finally, he has enough and he says to God, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, that I may not see my wretchedness. That's an extraordinary thing to say to God. If this is how you're going to treat me, I just want to die. I don't know if you ever said that or thought that. But Moses expressed that to God. If you're going to treat me like this, I want my life to end. Elijah felt the same way. You can read about this in 1 Kings 19. And Elijah comes to the point, remember he's, he's run away from Jezebel. He has faced down the, the wicked prophets. And by the grace of God and the power of the Almighty, he won a tremendous victory on Carmel. But then Jezebel shakes her fist and he runs like a baby. And then he's miserable and discouraged and he says to God, It's enough. Now, Lord, take away my life because I'm no better than my father's. And he's just like Moses. And he says, I can't take any more of this. And if this is the way you're going to treat me, I want to be done with it all. So, look, this doesn't justify our doubts. But it does say to us, Uh, We're all in the same boat, folks. You're not alone. You're not the only weak one. And frankly, that's encouraging. And it's encouraging not just because we're all in the same boat, but because as they were helped, so we can be helped. If they, in their difficulty and their weak faith, could be helped, so can we. So we think then, first of all, about the the amazing fact of doubt, but we also think about the difficult explanation of doubt. The difficult explanation of doubt. Now, why would John doubt? We saw how amazing it is that he did, but now, what would lead to this? What are the circumstances that might lead to his doubt? Well, oftentimes we doubt because life is tough. I'm sure you find that in your situation and in your life. You doubt when, when things are tough. When things are going swimmingly and the sun's shining, well, there are no clouds in the sky, and, and you're praising God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we sing that very easily. But when the clouds come and the rain falls and the waves start lashing out little boats, well, that's when we begin to doubt. And so when life is tough, that's when we doubt. And I think that that was probably... Uh, an element in John's situation. We doubt because, well, the message of the world is calculated to stir doubt. And we doubt because the devil works uh, to inculcate and generate doubt in us. And, And we doubt when life gets tough because our faith is weak. We have to remember that, that John, at this point, as we begin this section in verse 18... John has been in prison for probably a year and maybe up to 18 months. So he's been languishing in a rotten, 
dungeon in, in a first century prison for perhaps up to 18 months. And it seems then that the reward for a bold and faithful ministry, because that's what John had, he preached the message God gave him, he preached it with boldness, he preached it with courage, he told them what God had said, and he pointed them to the coming one, and he gets launched into prison. He gets thrown into a dungeon, and he's not released immediately, Even though Jesus now is walking around and preaching, Jesus is out there and he's hearing about the ministry of Jesus. But for maybe 18 months, he languishes in prison. And he might say to himself, well, I proclaim the coming of Messiah and Messiah is here. Is this the kind of blessing that characterizes the ministry of Messiah, the Messiah who comes to release the captives, but when he comes, I become a captive. What on earth is going on here? So when life gets tough, we begin to question. We begin to doubt. And we begin to think, well, now, is this really true? What the Bible says about God? I remember years ago, the words, what a friend we have in Jesus, came to my mind. And I said to God, what kind of friend are you? What kind of friend are you being to me? I wouldn't treat my friends the way you're treating me. You remember? Can you imagine the audacity of that? I don't say that without shame. That's a terrible thing to say. Sometimes that's how we respond, though. You might not actually shake your fist at God. You might not articulate it the way I had the audacity to do. But you might feel it. What kind of friend are you to me that I should have to go through this? We begin to doubt. But you see, the Bible doesn't really explain to us why John doubted the way he did. It doesn't really explain. And I think that that's telling. And I wonder if, if we had had the opportunity to sit down and talk to John and say, well, now, John, why are you doubting? I think he might say this. He might say, well... Honestly, I don't know. Like, I don't really understand how I could think like this. I don't really have a reason. I don't have an, a rational explanation. Because, look, I know better. I, I really know he's the coming one. I used to preach that. And a moment ago, I would have preached it, but now I'm racked with doubt. So I don't understand myself. I don't understand my weakness. I don't get it. I'm sure you and I have felt, I know I've felt that way. Like, I don't understand why. Sometimes I'm feeling just on top of the world and praises and all the rest of it, and then the slightest wind of affliction comes. You know, just a minor thing, just a minuscule thing. 
And it just comes along and and I'm on the ground. And I think, what on earth? So it's, it's a mystery. It's very strange. It's difficult to really explain. Well, I have a lesson for you here as well. And the lesson is humility. Humility. How terrible that you and I should doubt the Lord. How terrible that we should think terrible thoughts about God. How can we question his identity? How can we question the attributes of God that we know so well? It's very humbling. You know, the last couple of years, we've seen, we've seen Christians do terrible things. But I have to tell you that, in all honesty, from my experience, the worst thing I've seen over the last two, two and a half years, the worst thing I've seen, it's not what they do, it's the weakness of my faith. That's the worst thing I've been made to witness over the last two and a half years. It's easy for me to be strong and full of faith right here, you know, and preach to you about, oh, be great believers. Little faith will take your souls to heaven. Great faith will bring heaven to your souls. Be great believers. It's easy to do that here with you. It's easy to be strong here. But it's a different matter in the middle of the night when I'm alone with my thoughts. That's different. That's tougher. Because then you begin to think, now the wisdom of God, is that really true? Because this situation doesn't seem at all wise to me, honestly. And you can question his love. Because does the Lord even really care? Because for sure it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like he really cares. You question the Lord's omnipresence. Because you say, well now Lord, are you here? Because it doesn't feel to me like you're here. I feel isolated and I feel alone. So where's this vaunted omnipresence? And we question his omnipresence. And we question his, his omnipotence because we say, well, I really don't think you could find a way out of this. This seems way too complicated. And so we question all of these things and and then when you realize that you do, you, re, you, you, you look face to face into your doubt and you say, well now what a, what a shameful Christian I am. Humility. <laughs> it puts you in the dust and you might have been walking around with you know, your thumbs in your, like this and just like a peacock and you say, well then, oh, but what about the doubt? What about the questions? Where's the comfort that I should be deriving from my rich theology? And it's humbling. So we think then about the, the wonder of doubt. It's really an amazing thing that you and I should doubt the way John did. But secondly, the second area is the answer to doubt because we're not left in our doubt. The answer to doubt. And the answer, in a word, is God. That's the answer to doubt. 
It's God. In verse 19, we're told that John gets two of his disciples, and what does he do? He sends them to the Lord. He sends them to the Lord. That's the key. When faith wanes, and when your confidence is low, and when the questions are abounding, you don't want to be like a wounded animal. What the wounded animal does, it wants to go off by itself. It runs away. It runs away to be off there by itself. And when Christians are wounded and when they're struggling and when their faith is weak, they hide from God and they avoid Christians. And they stay away from church. And they stop praying. But that's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you do is to hide away from God. And the worst thing is to, is to avoid Christians. No, you need, first and foremost, to go right to God. And you need, in the second place, to hang around with Christians and seek their help. You see, John is a man of great faith. Oh, yes, he's a man of, of doubt. He doubts. His is a doubting faith. But it's a real faith. He's a man of faith. And you're a man of faith and a woman of faith. And you run to God as well. John's a great man of faith, and he takes his doubt right to the Lord. And he goes and he says, Lord, I have questions about you. For whatever reason, I'm having doubts, and it's about you, and it's about who you are. Are you really the coming one? He goes right to the Lord with this. Just like Asaph. Perhaps you remember Asaph in Psalm 73. See, now Asaph is having real questions as well. Deep questions, profound questions, really troubling questions. Because he says, now why are the wicked prospering? That's what I see all around me. It's what we see in Canada. Why are the wicked prospering? And why are the righteous suffering? I read about it every week in the bulletin. Somewhere in this world of ours, Christians are suffering. Why are they suffering? And sometimes they're suffering in situations where the wicked are prospering. So why is this? And Asaph comes to God and he says... This is such a struggle for me. I have such questions about this. And I'm doubting your goodness. Have I washed my hands? And it's all been a waste of time. As I've served God, has it been a waste of time? So Asaph has tremendous questions. What does he do? Well, in the middle part of the psalm, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I understood. So what Asaph ultimately does is he goes right to God. He brings it all to God. And things begin to open up. He begins to understand and begins to realize, oh, they seem to be prospering now. But in a moment, they're cast into hell. Well, the psalm ends in triumph. But the point is that the answer to his doubt his God. He goes right to God. You see, that's exactly what you and I ought to do. And when we go to God, what do you find? When you go to the Lord, what do you find? Well, several things. You find that he's the truth. He's the truth. Maybe you're not a Christian. If if you're not a Christian, maybe you have all kinds of doubts. You know, you have have doubts about who really is Jesus? Is he really the Son of God? 
about Muhammad and what about Buddhism about things or Jesus. I'm the way and the truth and the life. When you go to him, you'll find that he is the revelation of the mind of God. If you want to know what God thinks, you go to Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom and truth. He's the one in whom God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You go to Jesus. You take all your doubts and all your questions and and all your confusion, maybe... You know, you walk in here this morning and you're full of confusion. What do you do with it? Well, don't come and talk to us because we really don't have the answers. You go to the Lord Jesus. You pour them all out at his feet. You cry out to him. You call on his name. And you ask him to help you. And you'll find that he's the truth. He is the Savior. Yeah, he's the only one who can help us. He's the only one who can free us from sin. He is the one who was called the coming one. He is the one whom God promised. He is the only Savior Jesus uh, God has provided, even the Lord Jesus. That's what you'll find. So you go to him. You find he is the truth. And you come to know the truth, and the truth will, as Jesus said, set you free. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. So you'll find, when you come to him, you'll find that he's the truth. You'll find that he's gracious. You're a Christian this morning. But you, you know, everything I've said about doubt, it resonates with you because you understand that. You, you have those moments. Perhaps you had it this week. And you're ashamed. But then thanks be to God you're given grace to not run away, but to to come to him. And perhaps you called on his name this week and you said, Lord, forgive me. And what did you find? Well, you found grace, didn't you? You found that he was gracious to you. He was gracious to John. There's not one word of rebuke here. There's not one word that would have shamed John. Not one word of chastisement. Now, it's not a good thing that he doubted, but the Lord is gracious. And what the Lord does is to send a message to him, send some truth to him. Now, you go and tell John this. Go and teach John this. And the Lord lifts him up and dusts him off and sends him on his way. Some of you will have heard of Field Marshal Montgomery, great uh, English general, World War II. So it's, um, it's towards the end of the war, and it's before D-Day, the landing in Europe, and Montgomery is on the beach, not for fun, but for the preparation of his forces, and they're practicing what will be the landing on D-Day, and the soldiers are practicing on the beach And they're all in their full equipment, heavy equipment, and they're practicing what it's going to be like when they land on the beaches of Normandy. 
And Montgomery is there to watch and oversee, see how things are going. And there's a soldier who is running. You know what it's like to run on the beach in sand with boots and so forth. You can imagine how hard it was. And there's this, this young soldier with all his heavy gear, and he's running, uh, pretending to land in Normandy, and he's, he's running, and he sees Montgomery just... Just, oh, that's the great Montgomery, and he, he, my path is going to take me right in front of him. Who knows what went through his mind, but he's running, and as he comes right in front of Montgomery, oh, the worst thing happens, and he does a face plant right in front of the general. This is a true story. And Montgomery, the story goes, reaches out and, and doesn't mock him, lifts him up and dusts him off. And says, oh, it's a heavy load you're carrying, isn't it? And sends him on his way. He's gracious. And the Lord's like that with us. He's very gracious. And we bring our penitent failures to him. And he's kind and loving and encourages us. He's gracious and, and he's word-centered. The Lord is word-centered. I've got to hurry along here. Verses 21 to 23, what does Jesus do? Well, at first he ignores the question... And he just does his miracles. And then he says, now, you go and tell John what you've seen. Because, you see, what they had seen were things that were prophesied in Isaiah 35 and in Isaiah 61. What is Messiah going to do when he comes? Well, he's going to heal the sick. He's going to uh, give movement to the lame. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to release the captives. He's going to... Preach the gospel. When Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. And then Jesus did it, and he says, Now you go and tell John what you've seen. And what was prophesied is what I'm doing. So yes, I am the one. So the Lord helps John, and he does so in a a word-centered way. Go and give John the word-centered encouragement that I'm giving you now. So what the Lord Jesus was doing was what Jonathan did for David years and years before. Jonathan comes to David and encourages David. 1 Samuel 23, 16. Jonathan rose and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. And he says to David, look, David, this is what God is like. Don't be discouraged. Don't doubt Don't question, don't shake your fist at him, trust in him, this is what God is like. And it encourages David and it sends him on his way. So when you and I want to encourage people, we don't say to them, you know, they're they're all down and their arms are hanging down, their knees are weak, and we say to them, oh, he says, chin up, because you can do it, you're tough, and you can do whatever you put your mind to. That's the Dumbest thing you can say to anyone. Because it's simply not true. I found my experience, when I just put my mind to it, thinking I can do this, well, this just, this massive collapse. Because maybe humility is the lesson of the day. No, no, you go to, you go to your friend, you go to your brother and sister in Christ, and you point them to God, you strengthen their hand in God, you give them word-centered encouragement the way Jesus did. And then you also find that he's the Savior. He's the Savior. When we go to the Lord Jesus, we've got our doubts, 
Well, we go to him and we find that, yes, he is the coming one. He is the Savior. And by the grace of God, I have found it to be true that he is exactly what Luke has been trying to tell us he is. He's the Savior of the world. When I trust in him, I'm forgiven. My sins are dealt with, and my destiny is set, and heaven awaits, and glory beckons. When I go to him, that's what I find. Now, John's doubts were serious, weren't they? Because he's questioning the identity of Jesus. And as he questions the identity of Jesus, I mean, if Jesus isn't the coming one, then what has John been doing? Because John's come and said, here's the coming one. If he's not the coming one, then John's whole ministry has been a waste of time. So these are serious doubts. But when he goes and asks Jesus, he finds what you will always find, and you get help. Let me close with some lessons. The first lesson is be a theologian. Be a theologian. Frankly, I suppose it's better to say be a good theologian, because you are a theologian. You're either a good one or a bad one. So be a good one and have good theology. Even before the trials come, fill your mind up and your heart with good theology, full of knowledge. And then when the trials come, you can do what God says in Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 40, verse 9, God says, the Babylonian captivity is is looming on the horizon. And God says to his people, behold your God. How are you going to cope with trouble? Well, look long and hard at God. How are you going to cope with with trouble. How are you going to avoid those doubts? Well, look long and hard at God. Be a good theologian and then feast on the good things that you know about God. This great theological feast. You've stored things up. Feast on those good things in the midst of trial and affliction that inevitably comes in the Christian life. So be a good theologian. Secondly, be honest. Be honest. I, I think it's not an easy thing for some of us to be honest and say, yes, 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 I, I, I'm riddled with doubts. I mean, do you, think, do you think John had an easy time of it? Do you think John had an easy time to say to his disciples, remember now, they're the ones who listened to him preach, and they followed him and his example and his theology, and he says to them, go and ask Jesus, are you the one? <laughs> I don't think that was easy for him to do. But it's honest. And it's necessary. So you and I need to, well, we need to be honest. We might as well be honest with God because he knows we're doubting. So be honest. Thirdly, be careful. Be careful who you talk to. Uh, we're going to see in a minute that it's good to go and ask people's help, but don't ask just anyone. Don't talk to just anyone. Don't share this with just anyone because Asaph, well, he had struggles and he had doubts as we've seen, but Asaph in Psalm 73 verse 15, he said this, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he says, I can't just tell anybody this in case they, well, in case it hinders them. 
So be careful who you talk to. Make sure it's someone mature enough to handle it and mature enough to give you counsel. Next, be dependent. Be dependent. Ask someone for help. Ask a brother or a sister for help. Say, well, I'm, I am struggling. Please pray for me. And if you have any counsel, I'm willing to accept it. I was at the, uh, the Sovereign Grace Fellowship online prayer meeting. The pastors in the SGF have a weekly online prayer meeting. And I was in that prayer meeting on Thursday. And one of the pastors said this. He said, please pray for me. And we've had some struggles in our church. And I'm just so tired. And I'm just so discouraged. What do you mean you're discouraged? You're a sovereign grace preacher. You're a Calvinist. You're reformed. You believe in sovereignty. How can you be discouraged? Well, he says, well, you know, thankfully no one said that. But I'm discouraged. Openly acknowledge it and ask for help. Please pray for me, he said. Well, so be dependent. And then be focused. Be focused. Be like a horse with, you know, those blinders on so that you don't look too long at the discouragements, at the waves, at the afflictions. You don't dwell on those, but you focus. Where do you focus? You focus straight ahead. Fix your mind on things above, Colossians 3. Fix your mind on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12. Be focused. Not focused on the waves. Focused on the sun. And lastly, be a man, be a woman of faith. Be a man, be a woman of faith. Pray, Lord, increase my faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Listen to Daniel 6.23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the lion's den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. Be a man of faith. Second Chronicles 20, 20. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Be a man of faith. Be a woman of faith. You'll be established. Second Chronicles 13. There's a battle between Israel and Judah. And we read, Thus the men of Israel were subdued and at, at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Be a woman of faith. Yeah, be a man of faith. Thomas Brooks said, Were men more rich in faith, they would be more rich in other blessings. Be a man of faith. Be a woman of faith. You'll be richly blessed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, help us, we pray. We are weak and we are feeble. Help us to be those who walk by faith and have full confidence in our God, who trust you implicitly and wholly and completely, so that we might honor you, so that we might know blessing ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.